Thank you very much, Mira, and thank you for having me and um, for everyone coming to hear this talk. Um, it's also a lovely opportunity for me to thank the, um, the Reuters Institute for having me as a visiting fellow. It's a real privilege to be here and one of the lovely things about it is when I tell my colleagues across the news industry what I'm doing, there is universal jealousy, which is always nice as a journalist to make your, make your friends and competitors jealous. Um, so my interest at this point in my career is finding ways uh, to sustain the kind of journalism we need for democracies to thrive. Um, given the current democratic debates in the UK and the US and in much of the world really, um, it has never felt so important to think how can we do journalism that actually helps people understand the complexity of the world we're living in rather than adds to the noise and confusion. I'm also going to attempt to do this whole thing without mentioning Brexit once. Um, I think I'd get a prize if I do manage that. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so journalism is facing huge existential threats to its business model um, and to how it finds the audiences that help sustain those business models. Just when good information is needed most um, to help us make sense of this world, um, it's threatened. I'm going to take us through the threat to that journalism in the UK context because that's, that's where I know best. Um, I'm going to talk about why that matters more than any other industry that's facing the kind of digital disruption that journalism is facing. Um, some of the really exciting things that are happening in the industry to address this, and um, the industry is by no means standing still and there's some really fantastic innovation going on, but why that won't be enough to make sure that we have the kind of information we need for a healthy democracy and then to spell out um, the role I think the state might play in shoring that up. But this is my starting point. Um, journalists and journalism must be independent. There's nothing more important to uh, engendering trust and uncompromised journalism than that independence. Um, I was raised um, as a journalist at The Guardian and C.P. Scott was the most famous editor of The Guardian um, from 1872 to 1929, and he um, set up the trust that allows The Guardian to exist today. Um, in 1929, he wrote an essay marking the um, paper's 100th anniversary, and in it he wrote, One of the virtues, perhaps almost the chief virtue of a newspaper, is its independence. Whatever its position or character, at least it should have a soul of its own. That's my starting point in this. Um, but he also went on to say this very interesting thing about the struggles they were facing even back then in 1921. The tendency of newspapers, as of other businesses in these days, is towards amalgamation. The smaller newspapers have had a hard struggle. Many of them have disappeared. So this has been a changing industry for much longer than I've been a journalist. It's been a perpetual change. It's just that I think in the last 10 years, that kind of disruption and change has really sped up. But you can see in that, Scott reflecting on those shifts in the business of news. The argument I'm going to set out starts with this crucial importance of independence, but then um, look at the threats, and look at what we're now doing in order to survive. The threat facing journalism, it's well documented, but it's well 
worth spelling out, and it looks like that. So in the newspaper industry in the UK, um, this spans more than half of my career, um, and it shows a kind of perpetual decline. The one ray of hope in here, I'd say, is the eye, which is this tiny line here, but that has grown audiences, and that has been an innovation in print. So it's not a one-way story, but overall, that trend is really, really solid. Does it matter if the audiences are just going online and they're still getting good information online? Um, yes, because the money is still in print. Um, we haven't managed to find the, the model for, um, for digital journalism yet. So you can see over the last 10 years, the number of daily newspapers is flat, but it's really startling the reductions in local newspapers. Over 300 have been lost in that time. Um, and also the ones that remain have been really hollowed out. There's far fewer journalists working on them. Newspaper advertising expenditure is a third of what it was. Digital advertising expenditure that has grown, but not replaced what um, newspapers were bringing in. On this bit about how it breaks, the um, advertising market breaks down, this would be really hopeful as digital income, were it not for the fact that that isn't going to journalism, that's going to mostly Facebook and Google. Um, you can see the circulation has nearly halved on a daily basis, has halved on a weekly basis. The revenues from circulation, so the cover price, has not quite um, match that, but only because the price has gone up. And um, you start to get into a circularity where the more expensive a daily paper gets, the fewer people buy it. So it's chasing its tail. All of that adds up to this. This is the only proper estimate in the UK of the number of journalists um, currently working. Um, over the last 10 years, that's 6,000 fewer um, and heading in a downward trajectory. So why has this happened? I mean, quite obviously, it's our, our habits are changing. Um, this shows the uh, 16 to 24 year old market and how that's shifting, even in a very short time frame. This is just three years. 36% were reading some kind of print product every week and that went down to 14% over the space of those two years. So while the internet is still increasing, it feels like it might peak out quite soon. And again, there's not much money there. So digital disrupted news, it took away, in the first instance, our classified advertising. When I started at The Guardian, if you bought The Guardian on a Wednesday, um, you could hardly fold it in half because there were, you usually had two supplements full of um, jobs in in social work and in um, councils and teaching. Um, and that was a huge source of income. So the first thing that digital did was take away all that classified advertising. Um, but at the time, display advertising was doing okay. And we thought that display advertising would eventually increase on digital to take over what we were losing in print. The big, big change came at the beginning of the noughties, and that was um, the move to mobile. That's the real disruptor for the journalistic industry. Um, 
you could take display advertising out of newspapers and you could put it on a desktop. There is space for that to work. But how do you get it on those tiny little screens? And then how do you compete with the advertising models of Google and Facebook? They have better advertising models than newspapers, more targeted, you know, with search advertising, you're competing in a completely different way. Search advertising on Google, someone searching welly boots and you get an advert for welly boots. That's just so perfect compared with looking at a welly boot advert flushing across your screen for no reason. So, as of last year in the UK, 85% of digital advertising spend was with Facebook and Google, which leaves very little left for the journalistic industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, mood within the industry of great anger at Facebook and Google that sometimes gets conflated with some of the rows around the internet safety policies and um, fake news. But actually, they've just won that, uh, that model at the moment. They do better advertising. So the, the journalistic advertising model is broken. Local news has suffered appallingly, you can see from the chart I showed before. But now it's not only the print legacy brands that are suffering, it's the digital-only brands as well. In the last few months, we've seen redundancies at BuzzFeed, HuffPost, Vice, all those brands that were meant to reinvent journalism for a new generation with proper quality content alongside some of the fun stuff as well, they can't make it pay either. So in a way that's made the legacy brands, the brands that come from print, in a relatively safer position because there are still revenues in print. Um, but there's no future in that. When you see the way the younger audience is going, there is not a secure future to sustain the industry that we need. So why, why does all of that matter? It's an industry like any other, disrupted like any other. Um, you know, black taxis in the UK have lost out to Uber and all around the world. Linear TV is losing out to streaming services. Online delivery is hating the demise of the high street. I have this relic by my front door, which is an A to Z which has been completely made redundant by Google Maps, which I absolutely love. It's a brilliant product. Um, industry change, and I'm not... Industries change, and I'm not arguing that the news industry, as a news industry, is special and needs preserving because all my mates in journalism still need jobs. I'm arguing that journalism is special and indispensable and that our democracies won't function without it. It will be a poorer democracy that we live in. I'm going to turn to my friend C.P. Scott again. Um, a newspaper has two sides to it. It is a business, like any other, and has to pay in the material sense in order to live, but it's much more than a business. It's an institution. It reflects and it influences the life of a whole community. It may affect even wider destinies. It has, therefore, a moral as well as a material existence. I'm arguing that journalism is absolutely critical to democracy and we can't do without it. In the UK context, we do have a lot of news. We have the BBC, we have lots of different news brands, and in fact, it's very difficult to launch a new news brand in the UK, because not just because the business model is, um, is disrupted, but because there's very little space. We're a congested market. But my concern within that is who is missing out on news? 
What groups are not getting quality information to help them make the decisions that they need to make as active citizens? The bit I'm interested in is the democratic gap. People who are getting news versus those who aren't getting news or are getting varying quality of news. There's one way this, this um, there's one term that's been used to describe this group um, in America. Um, people call this group the unused. And I first heard this term used by my former editor at HuffPost, Lydia Polgreen. She convinced me to work there with this incredibly powerful call to create a brand that would be open for the people left behind by all those other news brands um, and that could bring a more diverse group into the conversation. This was just after Trump was elected when much of particularly the East Coast of media in America was regretting how it had covered the campaign, how it had not taken Trump seriously enough. Um, and she felt we needed to create a more inclusive brand that would bring people in and help them understand the other people sharing the country they live in. The idea of unused stems from the concept of unbanked, so people who are cast out of the structures of society that depend on you having a bank account, so you can't get a job or rent a flat or claim benefits without a bank account. You can't be an active citizen without good information. As part of my work at Reuters, um, I'm looking into the experiences of people who are unused or less news than others. Um, it's actually quite a hard group to get any kind of solid information on. Um, the very best quality um, uh, data that's available on news consumption is the Reuters annual digital report um, and also Ofcom does a survey every year that looks at news consumption. But both of those were interested in what people do read and watch in terms of news. They're not actually interested in the people who don't consume news. So there's much less rich information about who they are. Um, but from what we do know, it's actually quite hard to identify a completely unused group. Actually now, most people are getting some form of information. It's just of what really hugely varying um, quality. There is also, and this is the bit that really interests me, significant inequality in who is getting that news. So the Ofcom data reveals a bit about people who say, I don't follow the news. And this is really quite small data. It's only 147 people, 3% of their survey, who say they don't follow the news at all. Um, so these are quite small numbers, not to be leaned on too hard, but it suggests that those who are not consuming news are younger, um, poorer, and less likely to be in work. So that's the kind of social divide picture of people who get less good information. I wanted to find out more about this group, um, and the best analysis has been done by Rasmus Nilsson and Antonis Kalogeropoulos at the Reuters Institute looking at social class patterns within the Reuters research. So they found uh, several things that surprised me. Um, news consumption is more unequally distributed than income in the UK. Um, online news consumption is more unequally distributed than offline news consumption. Um, so one in four individuals 
um, do not consume any news online, while only 13% don't consume news offline. So there is greater social inequality in online news consumption than in offline news consumption, which is surprising. When, when I started um, thinking about digital and started in my career, um, the idea was digital was going to be this huge democratising force that brought information to everyone. And actually what we're seeing is narrower experiences um, for lower social classes. At the heart of that experience is how people navigate news. So the higher social grade individuals are more likely to go direct to websites and apps and have a direct relationship with news brands than lower social classes who are more likely to rely on social discovery and this idea that news will just kind of find them one way or the other. Um, none of the brands that Reuters' team looked at had higher readership online um, among lower social grade audiences. So that's the idea that if you take tabloids, which have traditionally been in the UK the function by which you get journalism in front of the widest range of people of varying quality, but there is journalism in the tabloids, um, when you take that offline, even their audiences are more higher social grade off online than offline. This is surprising, given that we thought we were democratising information in the internet. Um, it's more exclusive online than offline. So my next question was, how does that group feel about news? How do the people who have the poorest news experience feel about the information they're getting? And again, um, I looked to colleagues at the Reuters Institute, Benjamin Toff and Rasmus Nielsen, did this fascinating study where they carried out really in-depth interviews with 43 people who claimed not to be news consumers at all. And they wanted to understand the information experience they had. They concluded these three key ideas, which they called folk theories. So amongst that group, there were three recurring themes. The first was, the news will find me. And that was really about people um, getting their information from social media. So if I look at all my friends on social media, the important things I need to know will kind of bubble up in there. It's kind of in the air and ambient, and it will, it will find me in some way. The second group took a slightly more active role um, in finding news um, when they felt they really ought to know something. So that was the information is out there, and that was much more about people who, when they felt they really had to know something, would Google um, and look for something very specific um, and go out and look for it rather than wait for it to come to them. And the third one, widely held by lots of people, was I don't know what to believe. And this was a sense of being just so overloaded um, by information in all their various streams and underskilled to navigate that really complex world. How do I really know which source is best? If I see two things that are conflicting, how do I measure those up against each other? Oh, I can't be bothered, this is all too complicated. Um, this body of research shows that people from lower socioeconomic groups are less likely to say they consume news, and when they do, they're less likely to go directly to news websites and apps instead relying on the news finding them through social media and, if they're feeling a bit more proactive, Google. 
Some feel overwhelmed in the amount of information they're navigating. So, so far I've talked about this big problem in funding journalism, um, how digital has really disrupted our news experiences, who gets the best experience being really determined by social class. Um, now I want to look at what the news organisations are doing about this and some of the trends that you're seeing within the news organisations. So five to ten years ago, before that mobile revolution really took hold, most um, websites were in a race for advertising money. Even at The Guardian, we were trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger because there was some advertising money in that on the idea that we'd find another way to monetize it. That was absolutely the right strategy at the time. And it also saw a lot of new entrants in the UK, like BuzzFeed and HuffPost and Vice and Unilads and various ranges of publications starting up in the UK. And some of that diversity actually really forced innovation in the industry as well. It was good to have new entrants who were showing us a way to find younger audiences as well. But after that time where Facebook and Google really sucked up all the advertising, this aggressive growth model just wasn't going to stick anymore. And I actually think that has been good for journalism in this country in some counterproductive ways. I might be kidding myself just to kind of give myself some good news amongst all of this. But what it did was make brands really focus in on their core values and who they are. Because if they were going to monetize from their readers rather than advertising, they needed to be truer versions of themselves than they'd ever been. So just to take you through a couple of those models. So the FT just went hard paywall and that's very true to its audience who want that very high quality um, business led information um, that, that will be paid for. They've got very wealthy readers often putting, up, putting it on expenses. The Guardian went down the donations route um, and this was highly derided in the beginning because you essentially were getting these begging bowl letters on every page that people felt like were a bit embarrassing. Within the industry, The Guardian took a lot of flack for it, but actually they were very carefully calibrated to the specific Guardian audience that was most likely going to pay. And the really true loyal Guardian audiences are, hu are hugely charitable people. They really, really believe in charity and they really believe in The Guardian and they really believe in The Guardian being free for everyone. So it's been a hugely successful model and The Guardian's going to break even for the first time in my career, certainly um, this year, on the back of a million um, donations, regular donors. It's absolutely the right thing for, for their audience. Also, like The New York Times, they got a bit of a Trump bump, a post-Brexit bump of people believing in their cause even more. Third one I was going to mention is Tortoise, which you might not have heard of because it's very, very, very new and, and full disclosure, I'm doing some work with them at the moment. Um, but Tortoise, um, its tagline is slow down and wise up. So it's been set up by the ex-editor of the Times who went on to be director of news at the BBC. And after this extraordinary career in journalism, he just felt that the digital cycle of news was so fast and furious, it wasn't actually helping anyone understand um, what was really driving the news, what is behind this, why are these things really happening? If you're just getting a drip drip of incremental updates every day, how do you get beneath it? 
So he's set up a membership model um, which is going to do slow news. So forget the news agenda today. Let's think really big picture, invest a lot in very quality journalism. Um, you know, jury totally out about whether it's going to work. It doesn't even launch properly until April. But already they're doing some fantastic journalism. And I think um, just to see new models attempting to do really thoughtful, properly researched journalism makes it kind of quite an exciting time. So what, what I find inspiring about these strategies is that idea that they each is completely true to that news organisation's brand. So the FT is about wealthy audiences, the Guardian is about charitable audiences, the Tortoise is about um, audiences who are really looking for something more and something different. Um, so there is some array of hope within all of that as well, that we are innovating in an, in, in an interesting way. The thing that you could probably guess about all of these is that those audiences they're really trying to reach with those um, strategies are quite elite. They're quite um, educated, they're relative, they've all got some money to spare in order to be part of it. Um, and I worry that it will compound some of the problems that we've talked about before. If you get more and more of the very high quality organisations being behind paywalls, um, it could actually compound some of that inequality um, in, in information experiences. So these models are really good for journalism in itself and for doing better journalism, but I don't think it's enough for two reasons. So the current industry as it stands has no incentive to aim for that unused audience. Um, it's a gap that newspapers didn't fill very well even. Um, but digital, where you have so much richer information about who your audience is, should give the opportunity to really focus in on that. Um, in social media, there's lots of ways to get eyeballs on content that carry advertising, but attracting to people to proper public interest journalism is really, really hard. Um, the proliferation of those registration and paywalls might actually put more of that high-quality news out of reach. So the first problem I have with it is that the current industry has no incentive to fill the market gap for the unused audiences. The second is about local news. This shows our news outlets' coverage of the UK at the moment and how concentrated they've been, become. Um, local news really has been decimated. This map shows where there are still local news outlets um, and there are lots more very small hyper-locals starting up. Um, a lot of journalists who have lost jobs on local papers have gone and set up very small local things, sometimes just on Facebook and there is other information out there but they're not particularly sustainable models. The big uh, companies, that, the five big companies that own a lot of the local newspaper paper groups have also needed to keep on printing those titles because if they had any revenue, it was still in the printed product, even though it wasn't enough. So a lot of the um, local newspapers that have remained have been very hollowed out 
they have a lot of agency copy in, they have very little original journalism outside of the big centres. Um, the FT did a very good report on this idea of news deserts this week, um, which talks about ghost titles, where you've still got what looks like a newspaper in um, here, um, but it doesn't actually have any original journalism in it. So those white areas translate into councils unchecked, councils operating with not even the idea that a journalist might turn up to report on one of their meetings. Um, no journalist turning up to scrutinise the courts or NHS trusts or local education systems. The lack of accountability there is a clear disadvantage. I've focused quite a lot on newspapers and digital brands because that's where I come from, but actually even this morning there was news that Global Radio, which owns um, most of the radio landscape in the UK, is about to um, merge 40 local newsrooms into three, um, which is a massive blow. And radio, I think, is quite often invisible in all of these debates and actually cuts through to different audiences more than newspapers. People have the radio on. So those bulletins not being localised is, is another really big problem. <coughs> The threat to journalism is huge. It matters because democracies don't work without it. There are some brilliant new models to fix it, but they won't be enough because of local news and the unused audiences. Before I go on to the central point about what role the state might play, I'm going to try and play a video, mostly to give myself a break. Wait a minute. So, this video is David Bowie, um, because I think it's the cleverest thing that anyone said about the internet um, in 1999, um, and I love it because it's David Bowie, and because it's got a really weird mannequin in the back, and because, oh, sorry, and because Jeremy Paxman comes off really badly. And it was first invented. He was outrageous. He said, he's absolute bullshit. No, you see, I don't, I, don't, I, don't agree. I don't agree. I think the internet, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool, though, isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, it's an alien life form. What do you think, I mean, when you think then about Is there life on Mars? Yes, it's just landed here. But that's, it's a simply a different delivery system there. You're arguing about something more profound. Oh yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment. Where the interplay between the user and the provider will be so in sympathetical, it's going to it's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. Uh, but it's happening in every form. It's happening in visual art. The breakthroughs of the early part of the century, the people like Shaw, were so impressive to what they were doing and putting down. The idea that the piece of work is not finished until the audience come to it and add their own interpretation, and what the piece of art is about is the grey space in the middle. 
I'm going to stop him there. But I just think that's wonderful mm -hmm. that he identified that disruption in such an. You know, he talked specifically about content will be different, and it's David Bowie. Um, so, what role should the state play? Um, I feel a bit like I'm coming back down to earth after David Bowie. Um, so in 10 years, I've really, really come full circle on this. Um, and in some of my preparation for this, I went back and read um, some of what Rupert Murdoch, um, uh, the proprietor of News UK, was saying 10 years ago. Um, so in 1990, sorry, I lost 10 years then. In 2009, he made a speech in which he declared advertising broken. He said people would have to pay for journalism and warned against government interventions in the market. Ten years ago, I didn't agree that advertising was broken. I thought that was going to pay for digital journalism. I now completely agree. Rupert was right and very prescient. Ten years ago, I didn't agree that people would have to, all people would have to pay for journalism. Now I do, but I think it raises this problem for the unused and for local that haven't managed to make people pay. Ten years ago, he warned against government intervention in news. And he's, oh. He said, the growing drumbeat for government assistant for newspapers is as alarming as over-regulation. One idea gaining in popularity is providing taxpayer funds for journalists or giving newspapers non-profit status in exchange, of course, for newspapers giving up their right to endorse political candidates. Um, so... I actually agree with him. Uh, sorry, I, I agreed with him at the time. I now don't agree with him. I've spent a lot of time thinking about whether the government should take action to help the news industry and also some of the really scary unintended consequences of that. Um, last year, the former journalist and economist Dame Frances Cairncross was asked to undertake an independent review of the future sustainability of the press for the UK government and I was appointed to the advisory panel. Um, I went into that panel warning against any government role in journalism. Um, it feels completely wrong to me. Um, but I came out of it with a much clearer sense of the challenge the industry is facing, this idea of local news and, and the unused, and the fact that the market is not, at least in the short term, going to fill those gaps. And perhaps this is a point where the government can help. Um, if the news business was working, there's no way I would be going here. And I think editors have had to make compromises they wouldn't have dreamed of in the last few years in order to keep journalism afloat. And my second central argument will be that that takes stronger and more fearless and more and braver editing than you've ever need to navigate a much more complex world. We need many and varied ways to pay for news. We need diverse revenues. This could be one that could help address those specific problems I've talked about. At the sharpest end for the unused and for local newspaper, the market has failed. And this is not unlike other areas um, where the government has got involved. With high-speed broadband in the UK, um, very remote areas, it's just too expensive, the companies are not going to put high-speed broadband in. And that's now seen as such a fundamental to being part of our economy and society 
that the government is using a range of carrots and sticks to um, encourage the broadband um, companies to, um, to invest there. I think this is quite similar. So coming to the specific recommendations that Dame Francis made that um, relate to this. The first was around VAT um, exemption, so the value-added tax in the UK. This is not particularly controversial. Uh, newspapers have been VAT exempt for, um, I don't know how long, but they are. Um, and the idea is just to extend that to digital, digital revenues so that all those models of um, membership um, that, that newspapers are starting to develop um, don't have to pay VAT. That feels quite uncontroversial to me. Um, but does it go far enough to meet my tests, the unused and local journalism? I'd say not, because it's still about putting up paywalls and subscription models that are exclusive by their nature. The most controversial, I think, is the direct funding for local reporters. How do you get local reporters back on the ground? Um, what Dame Francis recommended was the extension of a current scheme that the BBC runs. So at the moment, the BBC has to, under its <coughs> charter, um, fund, I think it's around 80 local journalists that operate from newspaper newsrooms around the country and pool their reporting so anyone who's within the organisation can, can run it. That has actually been really successful in getting more journalists on the ground and into those council meetings um, and into the courtrooms to improve accountability. It has been um, criticised for subsidising the big newspaper groups that have quite screwed up local newspapers. Um, but I think the current evaluations come out positive. It has added journalism in this country. And Cairn Cross um, recommended expanding that um, with government funding as well as um, licence fee funding uh, with checks and balances to make sure that um, there, wasn't, you know, there wasn't a minister telling them what to report on. Um, and then the third one, uh, sorry, there was, oh no, I've missed one. So on tax relief, the second part of tax relief was on charitable status. So the blocker to charitable status for newspapers is that charities in this country can't have political purposes and newspapers need to be able to take political viewpoints. Um, she is pushing very hard for the government to create a special category for newspapers so that they can be seen as charitable purposes. And there might be kind of particular... Um, stipulations in there that it has to be for the production of public interest news, um, democratically important news, so you're not giving charitable status for um, uh, lower quality, less vital news for democratic purposes. The last one I think is the most important thing the government can do um, and that would be to set up a, um, a uh, innovation fund that was managed independently of government to look at ways to innovate to shore up those problems. So specifically, so it was to set up an innovation for newspapers unit that would have a fund that it would invest to help find business solutions for local journalism, to support data analytics, to improve membership models, um, to look at AI in terms of reducing some costs. Um, and my 
favourite bit of that was um, the stipulation that such funding would support approaches designed to bring new audiences to public interest news, including young people and other groups who have traditionally engaged less with investigative and de democratically important reporting. So it's very clearly saying, let's try and target and come up with innovative ways to fix a problem that has never been fixed, to try and get good information for people who are not currently accessing it. Um, so just to sum up, um, we talked about how the threat to journalism is really real. Um, it matters more than other industries because it's about democracy. Um, there are these new models coming through, but they're not enough to tackle the problem of local and unused. Um, my argument is that the state could step in in a targeted and restrained way um, where the need is most urgent, um, and mostly to tackle the innovation we need to fix some of the really structural problems. 20 years ago, I wrote a dissertation at the University of Leeds called um, Civil Liberties in Cyberspace, about how the internet was going to democratise society. And I got absolutely everything wrong. Um, but back then, it was a dream of this ut utopian dream of how the internet would challenge power structures and democratise information um, and put power into the audience's hands. And some of that has happened, but it just doesn't look so rosy now. Um, Fast forward my career in journalism, that really coincided with that rise of digital, and I see a situation where we have more information than ever, but arguably a more narrow understanding of the world. Instead of democratising information, there is now a risk our digital lives are exacerbating gaps in democracy and mounting evidence that the quality of information people get is increasingly dictated by their life circumstances. The advertising-based business model for news is no longer enough. Those with wealthy audiences can do something about that, but to come up with journalism that will cut through for younger audiences and lower socioeconomic classes, we need to do more to innovate. The threat is now so huge to some parts of journalism that we're having to consider some things we never would have considered for, before to survive. Government support in the right form, with the right checks and balances, is not the worst option particularly in an age where some corporations that have much greater influence on um, the news industry exert as much power as some states. Um, but the thing I'd conclude on is that this is really tricky territory and it's going to take really strong editors to navigate it. Thank you very much.